Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Go Set a Pet Edition. It's Wednesday, July 28th, 2015. On today's show, The Look of Silence is the follow-up to the extraordinary documentary film The Act of Killing from filmmaker Joshua Oppenheimer. And then our critics of so-called Frankenfood's nothing but anti-science hysterics, Slate's Will Salatin seems to think so. We'll ask him about his year-long investigation into GMOs. And finally, What Pet Should I Get is a new posthumous book by Dr. Seuss. We will discuss. Joining me today is Slate's editor. Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hello, Stephen. Uh, Julia, I understand we have a bunch of business we need to take care of before we discuss our topics. What do we have? Well, first, I want to let our listeners know what our Slate Plus segment for the week will be. Uh, We're going to talk about a great essay written by Jacob Brogan for Slate.com about his conflicted feelings about his masculine love of the masculine art of grilling. We're going to talk about gendered pursuits we are somewhat embarrassed to love. Uh, And then I also wanted to let our listeners know that we are doing a live show in Chicago for the first time ever. We are coming to Chicago. It will actually be my first time in the city, not just my first time performing in the city. I'm super excited to check out Chicago. Um, Jane is giving me an outraged look. (laughs) Like, it's crazy that I've never been there. Uh, It is on uh, Tuesday, September 22nd at the Music Box Theater in Chicago. And you can sign up for tickets at slate.com slash culture C-H-I. That's culture C-H-I. So come on out. We look forward to seeing you. All righty. Cool. Excellent. Well, let's dig in right away. Um, The Act of Killing, I think we all agreed, was one of the more astonishing documentaries, really films we'd ever seen, certainly in the uh, run of this show. It's one of the few things I've told people evangelically they absolutely have to watch now joshua oppenheimer the filmmaker has come out with a kind of a sequel or a follow-up the first film was an exploration of the mentality behind the gangsterism that prosecuted this horrible genocide the new film is really more of an anatomy of the effects of it uh, from the point of view of some of its victims dana you had the good luck not only of seeing and reviewing the film but of interviewing the filmmaker i'm curious what you thought of this as a follow-up to the first movie 
Yeah, I did. I actually interviewed Oppenheimer when both of these two movies came out, back when The Act of Killing came out, I think, two years ago, and then earlier this spring about this movie. And uh, and he's a prodigious, prodigious talker. This interview, this hour and a half interview that I did with him, uh, it's up on Slate now, came to something like 18 pages <laughs> when we finished with it. And he is very, very interesting to, to hear talk about his work. So I highly recommend people read that if they're interested after this segment. But I think he would probably have contested your characterization of this as a sequel to The Act of Killing. In a way, it's more like a prequel but I think he thinks of the two of them as sort of companion films. And this was actually started first. The story of this, you might call the main character of this documentary, Adi Rukun, this Indonesian who goes in search of the truth about his brother's killing in the mid-60s, was, I think, one of the first people that Joshua Oppenheimer hooked up with in Indonesia and started hearing these stories about how their family had been affected by the genocide. And uh, and Adi Rukun, I suspect, is probably the anonymous collaborator who's credited as, as the co-director of both movies. And it's because of the story of his brother, Romley, who was killed in 1965 or 66. I'm not sure at what point in the in the killing spree he disappeared that the whole investigation began that led to the act of killing. In other words, it was because they were trying to speak to the killers who are still in power. If you saw the act of killing, you you know this fact. They have not been brought to trial. There hasn't been any truth and reconciliation. They are essentially still local leaders in their areas. It was during that storytelling that he started to realize that all of these killers were not only not repentant at all, but were eager to reenact and almost dramatize their their crimes. And so that's how the act of killing came to be. So you might sort of think of this as like a sandwich movie, right? It began before the act of killing and it ended after it, but it sort of gave rise to, to all of that, if that makes sense. Yeah. And the movie has a very different tone and structure from uh, the act of killing as well. I mean, it borrows some of its cinematic language, but it's a little bit more classic. It has characters. It has this main character, Adi Rakun, who's an ophthalmologist, which is a sort of mesmerizing device that allows him to approach these aging killers and give them free eye exams and then interview them as they are sort of pinned with optical devices on their eyes, uh, unable to move. And it, it makes for some mesmerizing conversations. Um, the other characters in the film are... Uh, Adi's mother and father, who lost their son. Adi was born after a few years after um, his, his brother Romley was killed. And the film follows Adi as he sort of shuttles back and forth between interacting with his parents and his children and his wife, who becomes increasingly concerned about his dangerous interviews with uh, these killers who are still in power, and his very gentle uh, questionings of these killers. And I think the film's title, The Look of Silence, to me, seemed to be a reference to Adi's face. He has this sort of mesmerizing, amazing presence, very quiet, very still, very absorptive presence. And he'll patiently ask a small-seeming question to one of the killers and then just wait. And the, the killers tend to unspool and unravel and recount and get flummoxed. And he asks penetrating but quiet questions and then looks on silently to see their effect. And to me, that's, I mean, the film is sort of a lot about looking. It's about what the country's looking at, what it's not looking at. It's about what Adi's looking at. There's another set of scenes where we see Adi's face as he watches some of the other footage that Oppenheimer has shot of of different killers describing their pursuits uh, to Oppenheimer's camera. And again, you see his face quietly absorbing their sins and their glee about their sins. He really makes him an incredibly powerful, quiet, charismatic, central figure in the film. 
Which makes it a very different feeling film from The Act of Killing. Like The Act of Killing, it's, it's hard to watch. It's about terrible things, and it's, it's something that makes your skin crawl. But it isn't uh, grotesque and excessive and obscene in the way that The Act of Killing is. In fact, in a way, as, Julia, as you say, it's just the opposite. It's kind of very centered and, and very quiet, even though it's looking on some of the same horrors. So I really liked it. I thought I, I feel like I would add it to my list of movies that I would evangelize for. But Steve, you you were in your intro were very rah rah act of killing. Um, do you think you would send people in similar droves to see this? Uh, I just unequivocally regard this movie as a masterpiece, and in some ways preferred it to the first one. That that's you know trivial way of putting it because people should watch both of them. To me, what's interesting about it isn't the psychology of the killers because there's an impenetrability to the mind of an evil person, I think. You can't really enter their logic. You can't think like them. And more importantly, you can't get them to think like you. You can't You can't really inspire in them the conscience that they completely lack um, or empathy that they completely lack. What's interesting to me is the so- social psychology of it. And I think one way to look at the, and I'm educated in this only by these two films, but my takeaway is that the Indonesian genocide, political genocide, acted as a kind of um, anti-moral filter on Indonesian society. It allowed a certain kind of thug to um, be empowered. It allowed that thug to not only prosecute the will of the American empire in ridding supposedly Indonesia of supposed communists, what it really did is it allowed them, it seems to me, to not only sort of set themselves up as kingpins, but also to purge village society, their own small world village universe of people they found undesirable for whatever reason. I mean, you know, really kind of on an arbitrary basis decide who lived and who died. Um, And then Dana, I think, used that most salient phrase in her introduction, which is um, truth and reconciliation. This is what happens when uh, a genocide happens and it reshapes a society, and in the reshaping, the possibility of truth or reconciliation is eliminated completely. That's why these people speak, the gangsters speak in this voice of almost radical unrepentance. So they speak with a kind of joy and impunity. And I think it was important to make a, a second documentary that in its way spoke to what the cost of the implied silence imposed upon the rest of society, Indonesian society, has been. And uh, I, I think this is truly a beautiful document. I, I really, there's there's no way to praise it highly enough in my estimation. Can we talk a little bit about how beautiful it is? I will say that I did have uh, one response to this film, which is just how on earth did they make it? I, I could not get over how in every scene where a charged emotional conversation was happening... None of them seem to have been captured by accident in a poorly lit, ill-composed, like, room devoid of sumptuous color. Like, always there was, like, a a swath of lavender mosquito netting, like, diagonally slashing across the frame behind them as they, you know, uh, as the son reveals to his mother um, that that a member of her family actually may have participated in his brother's killing. Or there is a shot of a lush swath of greenery with small figures dotting the landscape with an almost abstract formalism. It's just mind-boggling to me that this film has such political authority, such emotional power in every scene, and looks so freaking good. It's almost jarring how good it looks. Do you have any sense of how they achieved this, Dana? 
Well, it's interesting you say that because when I interviewed Joshua Oppenheimer earlier this year, the frustrating thing about the interview is that he was such a talker and he was so good at talking about abstract ideas and his vision for his work and kind of politics in Indonesia that we didn't get to an entire page of questions that I had, which were largely about technical things like what kind of cameras did you use? How big was the rig that you brought into these interviews? You know, when you when you barge into the house of a former genocidal killer with a little, you know, ophthalmology glasses set and started to film him, what did he see before him? Was it a small camera? Was it a big camera? Were there lights? I think I read somewhere that they used those cameras that look like SLRs. They're those video cameras that just kind of look like you have a still camera, but they actually take excellent video, which sort of gives you a sense of what the room might have been like. Yeah, they're definitely digital cameras, and they had to have been some sort of discreet setup. And it's not like they were being filmed secretly, you know, and you can hear that Joshua Oppenheimer's there in the background along with Adi asking them questions in Indonesian, which he speaks fluently. But the cinematographer for both movies is this guy named Lars Scree, which is a very fun name to say, Lars Scree. And it's really obvious that he and Oppenheimer together have put a great deal of care into the placement of the camera, the color grading, or I don't know what they do in post-production to make the colors look so beautiful. I mean, Indonesia itself is a very colorful place, and they're often outside in these, like you say, very lush, verdant spaces, which contrast even more with the terrible stories that we're hearing. Also, the sound, if you notice, the sound mixing is really, really carefully paid attention to, and I asked him about that. And he did talk about the cricket sounds that he lays in, which which he often would import from different scenes. In other words, according to the emotional tonality of the scene, he would either lay in a lot of crickets or just one cricket. He doesn't have any external music or anything that he lays over, but he uses a lot of the actual sound in a kind of musical way. So there's there's tons and tons of, of aesthetic fiddling going on with this the image and the sound here. It's not at all kind of the uh, cinema verite, let's plonk a camera down and see what happens approach. Can you talk a little bit about what he shared with you about how they capture these emotionally charged moments on screen? I mean, to me, that's the thing that feels most revelatory about his documentary making. And I think we've talked about this on the show before. Documentary is a form that is wonderful, but that kind of gives me the fiddles as a journalist or the heebie-jeebies, I should say, since Lexicon Valley did a whole segment on that word this week. Um because I don't understand the rules. It feels like each documentarian makes his or her own rules with every film. And sometimes they accord very closely with the rules of journalism as I understand them. And sometimes they wildly diverge. And there are a lot of times and a lot of directors who handle that lazily. They seem to be making their own rules on the fly. They'll just throw random, like, you know, ominous shots of missiles firing. And you're like, was is that just like stock footage right, of they a don't missile? Source the footage what missile that drives is me crazy. That? What are you talking? Like, I hate that kind of thing. I feel with Joshua Oppenheimer like I'm in very good hands. Like I feel that there is rigor in the work. On the other hand, it also feels like he isn't following the rules of classic journalism in terms of how these conversations come about, the interview that's conducted during the eye exam, even the kinds of conversational interventions used to get uh, to the heart of the matter. Can you talk a little bit about what he shared with you about his process? Well, he definitely talked a lot about his rejection of the, the usual form of, of documentaries that we see, that, that they tend to fall into either either the category of the, quote, fly-on-the-wall documentary, which he went on at length about what an absurd concept the fly-on-the-wall is and that you would be able to have, you know, an intimate conversation with someone who might have killed your brother while somebody was filming you and not be aware that the camera was there, right? He just talked about how the camera changes inevitably any interaction that's happening between two sentient beings in front of that machine. Um, um, and so he, he he really didn't want to approach it as a sort of the cinema verite fly on the wall myth that he doesn't believe in. As for how they managed to get those moments with the killers, I mean, that to me just has to be 
the magic of Joshua Oppenheimer and Adi Rukun working together. I tried to talk to him about how they prepared, for example, for those interviews when they went in to some killer's house with their ophthalmology set. You know, how much did they prepare what they were going to do or did they just sort of let it unfold in front of them? And um, one of the things he said is that they had a lot of security preparations in place because, as we see a couple of times in the movie, they are sometimes threatened, sort of obscurely threatened by these people that are still in local power saying, yeah, why if you, you ask too many questions, right, it might happen to you. Yeah, why are you asking about this? Why are we talking about this time? If we talk about this time, something like this might happen again. There's a, there's a few very charged, veiled threats. And again, Adi's face is just, just absorbs the threats and then kind of reflects them back on the killer in this really emanating, powerful, brave, quiet way. They're, they're incredible moments. But they, they took security measures? Well, just in the sense that they were ready to flee. You know, they would have a getaway car at the ready. They had, um, they had Oppenheimer's passport at the ready. They had Adi go with no ID at all, because apparently in, in Indonesia, you're supposed to carry ID at all times. But, you know, if you don't have it, it makes it harder to sort of track down and figure out who he is. And, and then they ended up actually moving Adi's family out of that village and helping establish them elsewhere in Indonesia, also for safety reasons around the time. Before the movie, the movie came out. Came out. The, uh, Joshua Oppenheimer has also explained in interviews that when they went and did these confrontational interviews with the with the killers of Adi's brother, they he had made the act of killing, but it had not been released yet. So there was a general sense of, oh, Joshua Oppenheimer has been spending all this time with these government muckety-mucks and these big shot former killers, and they are friendly with him because he's you know been hanging out with them for five years now. And so they were able to do these interviews at a moment when the kind of political infrastructure of Indonesia was looking kindly on Oppenheimer before they figured out what he was actually up to when the act of killing came out. And that before this movie came out, Adi's family had been moved. Right. And that was part of why they wanted to get all this footage down before the act of killing came out so that if, in case they were banned from ever entering Indonesia again, they would still have the material they needed for the two films. I mean, as far as the question of where it falls on the documentary spectrum, I asked that question in my review about both movies. And, and I feel like I haven't fully answered it, but that's part of what makes these movies so fascinating and powerful is that there's somewhere in between aesthetic, right, works of kind of aesthetic beauty or significance, works of art, uh, works of reporting or documentary. And almost something like performance activism or something like that, which seems like something that Joshua Oppenheimer's also always been interested in, which I didn't get to. It was also on the page of Unasked Questions, is that I was just looking at some of his his pre-filmmaker background. He studied, I believe, filmmaking, but he definitely studied with a filmmaker, Dusan Makoveyev, the, the Serbian filmmaker at Harvard. And Makoveyev, who mainly didn't make documentaries, he made fiction films, was known for similar sort of... Um, communitarian events that he would stage in his movies, like the actors would all live together, communal style, and they would film these kind of orgiastic parties. And he had he was interested in actual experience happening on film and unfolding in an unexpected way. And I wanted to ask him about how that influenced his work. Also, apparently, when he was at Harvard, Oppenheimer was known for doing these kind of almost real-life stunts that, to me, resemble a sort of a seed of this idea, which is, for example, that he would infiltrate neo-Nazi groups by pretending to be a neo-Nazi. You know, he would sort of investigate worlds that were alien and frightening by inserting himself into them. That's so interesting. I didn't realize that backstory of his. I mean, I do think... This is weirdly reminding me of something you said, Steve, when we talked about the Lifetime reality show Unreal, and I recognize that this analogy is... uh, sort of idiotic on its face because of the the vast difference between the the gravity of the subject matter here but there is one thing we talked about is how in a very construct if you make a very constructed encounter on screen there can be a lot of construction behind the encounter but 
actual human emotion can result in in weird ways. And I think that's part of what the mechanism is, is that he constructs these human scenes that would not have happened but for Joshua Oppenheimer going to Indonesia for 10 years to investigate this subject. And yet the truth that seems to come out of that encounter feels sort of timeless and eternal and human and horrifying. I, I see your point, Julia. I would shade it a little bit in the direction of the difference rather than the similarity. The difference being so much of what allows these seemingly improbable encounters to happen is the actual improbability of the circumstances, which is these same people being in power a generation later and still feeling a total sense of impunity and uh, and and a total lack of danger for their political gangsterism. And so they're completely available to have these encounters because no one has challenged them for 30, 40 years. Um, but uh, anyway, it's an astonishing film. It's called The uh, Look of Silence by Joshua Oppenheimer. It comes with my highest recommendation. It sounds like you guys were moved by it too. Check it out and come to facebook.com slash culturefest and tell us what you think. All right. Well, now is the moment in our show where we're going to talk uh, promo. Uh, Julia, what do we have? I wanted to let our listeners know that Slate Plus, Slate's wonderful membership program, is drawing nigh to signing up its 10,000th listener. Very exciting for us, very exciting milestone for the program, which of course supports Slate and its journalism and also gets its members a special extra bonus segment of us yakking every week. Uh, To celebrate this big milestone this week, we are doing a pitch slam. We are inviting Slate Plus members to come to a special page that we will post a link to on our show page uh, and pitch any story that they want to write. It could be a Slate story. It could be a Slate Plus story. Uh, We'll have editors and writers weighing in on the comments thread, giving feedback, and then we'll make an assignment for the best idea we find in that comment thread. So Slate Plus members, please come join our Pitch Slam. Tell us what great stories you'd like to do. And if you have not yet signed up, please come sign up at slate.com slash plus. All right, Steve, what's next? Will Saladin is the national correspondent for Slate magazine. He spent the last year digging into the evidence surrounding GMOs and the potential dangers therein. Here is what he learned. Quote, it's true that the issue is complicated, but the deeper you dig, the more fraud you find in the case against GMOs. It's full of errors, fallacies, misconceptions, misrepresentations, and lies. Will, welcome to the program. We've never had you on before. It's really cool to be here. Thanks. It's very cool to have you. Will, that is a extremely unequivocal denunciation. Is that where the evidence took you? Yeah. I mean, it, it, I wouldn't actually call it uh, unequivocal. I mean, the, the, one of the problems with this whole topic is it's so darn confusing. If you When you go into it, it's really hard to draw a general conclusion. But there's sort of a negative conclusion you can draw, which is it is not true that there is you know, any evidence that GMOs as a category are less safe than non-GMOs. And that's just the bottom line that I came to. Over the course of reaching that conclusion, of course, I had to go into all these case studies where I looked at specific crops and specific technologies, and I basically compared the GMO to the non-GMO version. And there, again and again and again, I just found uh, various claims made by the anti-GMO side that just didn't check out. Um, And I found them contradicting themselves, and it made me very wary of, you know, not just, you know, what typically you would say, well, you don't trust industry, but also you should be equally skeptical of what the anti-industry people say when they have an agenda. Mm. Would you say that the anti-industry forces uh, in the GMO debate are monolithic? Did you find that some people have uh, legit complaints, or is it really a kind of 
wall of um, superstition and hysteria. I, I would not say that they're monolithic. And I would go actually a little more broad, broadly than that. I would say that one of the things that we need to get away from in this debate and a whole bunch of other debates is that sort of monolithic mindset. Like you, you come in, you choose a side, maybe your friends are on one side, and you very quickly say all the people on the other side are wrong, they have bad motives, they're untrustworthy, they lie. Um, and it's almost never that simple. So in this debate, for example, it's no, there, there's plenty of sensible anti-GMO people. Believe me, if you talk to the pro-GMO people, they think the anti-GMO people are all crazy and dishonest and all that and vice versa. But what you actually find, and I've you know had exchanges with various anti-GMO people, is there's differences. There's people who get up there and will say absolutely anything. And you very quickly can put a little sticky note on that person and say, don't believe anything this person says without checking it out. And then there's other people who are, you know, a little more measured and they don't say the crazy stuff. They make some criticisms that are actually valid. And so, you know, it, what I found in the course of doing this was the most valid criticism of GMOs uh, has to do with crops that are engineered to be tolerant of herbicides. So you can spray all the Roundup you want on your crop. It won't kill your crop. It'll just kill all the weeds which is great until all the weeds adapt to it. And so you get in this sort of treadmill where you're you know, using a lot of pesticides. And so that's a totally legitimate criticism of GMOs, except for the part where it's not really about GMO. It's about the use of this particular technology, which can be done via GMO or via breeding or, or there are other methods to get it into your crops. One of the things that I think struck me about this piece and one of the reasons I was excited about your work on it, Will, is that I have found that the debate around genetically modified food is one, at least in my social circles anecdotally, where the liberal consensus diverges from the scientific consensus. I feel like for the last, certainly starting with the kind of Bush administration, probably going back further, there's been this narrative over the last 10, 15 years, true or not, where folks on the left and, and Democrats tend to think, we're the party of science, we're the people who follow what logical smart people have concluded. We, you know, believe in climate change and, you know, for the most part, we vaccinate our children. But I found anecdotally that there's like a little more of a cultural, less cultural certainty around GMOs. It's a, the set of people who have looked into the science tend to draw the same conclusion you do, which is that there's no systemic reason to think that that GM as a category is bad uh, and that you really have to understand things case by case. But um, it seems like it's been harder for that to get absorbed culturally. Is that something you encountered in your reporting? Oh, absolutely, Julia. And, and well, a, a lot of the reason why that happens is that if you come from a sort of liberal background, a lot of what you've learned about you know, science and right thinking and good policy is in opposition to industry. You don't trust industry. Industry lies. Industry is trying to you know, always like, pollute and, and get away with it, not pay taxes, not you know, worry about the consequences of what they do to the environment. So you come into this debate. And you're presented with this phalanx of environmental groups that say, you know, GMOs are bad. It's Monsanto. It's Ingenta. I mean, I've believe me, I've been on radio shows the last week with, you know, in California, and people are everything's Monsanto, even when Monsanto has nothing to do with it. You know, golden rice, Monsanto. No, actually, that's not. You know, that's Monsanto not. Is, there's no industry. Monsanto is maybe the greatest evil corporation name like in America, just like phonetically, like the one that you want to hold up. And I mean, maybe Exxon is the other one that just feels like 
like it's got that nice phonic. Yeah, I can. I kind of feel bad for Syngenta, which was actually you know originally AstraZeneca, this other company that like got involved with Golden Rice. They don't get any credit, i.e., they don't get blamed. They don't get <laughs> nobody calls them because, evil. <laughs> exactly. Like Syngenta's like got to be out there. Like, how do we get this Monsanto rep? So yeah. So people. So what actually happens is you go in thinking it's an industry thing. I'm going to be on the other side from industry because that's the side of good science and that's the side of skepticism. So that's the first problem is you go in with the and so when you come across a subject as will inevitably happen where industry turns out not to be on the wrong side then you know you have to sort of back up and say okay let me rethink this this one doesn't fit my usual pattern so that's part of what i found with gmo but the other thing the other point that i i think is really important to understand is the time the the, the moments in your life when you are most credulous are when you think you are being skeptical. You think you're being suspicious. And the, the main psychological problem that a lot of liberal people have with GMOs is, I am the, you're, you're pitched this message from the anti-GMO side, don't trust Monsanto, don't trust corporate America. They're trying to cover it up. It's tobacco science. You know? And so while they've got you all psyched up with this I'm being skeptical thing, what's actually happening is they're making you totally credulous toward their own claims of harm. So it, it's not until you turn around and say, all right, now I'm going to apply the same standards of skepticism to the evidence against GMOs that you discover that the whole thing starts to fall apart. Yeah, you know, Will, something that I learned from from your investigation that I would never have guessed before is that the the initial push behind GMOs, which you trace back to this the Hawaiian papaya case from when did that happen? The Hawaiian papaya virus? That was all going on in the 1990s. The 1990s. And, and that was sort of what you might look at as the first step in creating g- genetically modified crops, correct? Yeah, well, they were they were all going on simultaneously. The BT crops were were being approved during the 1990s, also in the United States. The papaya, I have to, I don't remember the whole sequence of it. There, I think they're roughly contemporaneous, but the papaya was out there and commercialized in 1998. At any rate, what I wanted to point out about the papaya story that was new to me is that those were actually public sector scientists in Hawaii. It was not a corporation at all that was behind that initial push to cure this this virus that was killing all the papayas of Hawaii with a genetically modified plant. Yeah, totally. And, you know, the, the funny thing there is, so Monsanto did have uh, uh, some intellectual property there. And the, the scientist who was like Cornell University guy who just wanted to sort of save the papaya crop, which was really in serious trouble from this virus, you know, they had to get some rights to be able to use this technology to, to, do, to do the genetic engineering. And Monsanto's attitude was that, look, they weren't going to make any money off of this. So, yeah, like the, the, the portrayal of Monsanto, of the big corporation, is kind of accurate there. They look at this and they say, we're not going to make any money off it. But they're not evil. They don't say, well, therefore, we won't let you do this. They're just like, look, we'll license this to you. You're just a bunch of you know, local farmers. Um, go, go do your thing. And then the, then the public sector scientists go make it happen. So, so you know, the corporation gets out of the way because it it's not evil. It's just not going to make any money off this. And then the public sector scientists do their thing. And in that case study, you get to see the difference between GMO, the technology, and the so-called GMO industry, you know, the, the big ag companies. Because they, they don't necessarily overlap. And in this case, they definitely came apart. Will, the, your, your piece unfolds as case studies of four different crops, uh, including the papayas that Dana just mentioned. One of the case studies that was most interesting to me was the story of golden rice. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the history there? Yeah. Golden rice was um, started basically by some scientists who were working for, I, I swear to you guys, I was like on a radio show in California a couple of days ago where this was described as a Monsanto thing. I'm like, no, no, no. Monsanto had nothing to do with this. Okay. None of the corporations were involved in this. It was started by 
scientists who are working for the Rockefeller Foundation, which was basically trying to deal with diseases all over the world, malnutrition. The idea was, can we use this technology of genetic engineering to make a crop not just like herbicide-resistant or insect-resistant, but better for people? Can they? Go? So the problem was, there's huge parts of the world where there is in, there's this epidemic of vitamin A deficiency, and it's because you know in a lot of places these people are just eating rice all the time. That's all they can afford. That's all they grow, and rice doesn't you know make sufficient quantities of vitamin A. So they're like, can we? Can we engineer this into the crop? And what was, it was totally amazing because nobody had ever done this before. Make a crop produce a vitamin that it didn't use to produce. And they succeeded. Okay, so they succeed. And again, this is, you know, public sector work. And the entire time, the anti-GMO movement is freaked out about this because they're looking at this and, and thinking, wait, this isn't evil. In fact, this will save lives if it works. So we can't, this can't be true. We can't allow this to be true. We can't allow this to happen. We can't allow people to believe this. So they call it a Trojan horse for genetic engineering. And they're just fighting constantly to stop it, to defund it. They're asking the Gates Foundation. They're asking the Rockefeller Foundation to stop supporting this research. It's totally crazy. And to this day, I still have rebuttals to this Slate article where people are saying, you know, golden rice, you know, we didn't succeed in stopping it. It had other technical problems. And yeah, it does have technical problems, but it is totally insane that anyone in the name of protecting public health would be trying to stop this project. And what happened? Was it eventually approved? It's, it's, it's been in development in the Philippines. So what they did was they've, they first they had to engineer the rice to make beta carotene, which they succeeded. Then they had to increase the amount of beta carotene to a level where that would supply enough vitamin A so that these kids would, not, would stop going blind and dying. And then, then they're in a stage where they have to so-called, they have to back cross it. They have to breed it back into the, the kind of rice that people eat in like Southeast Asia. So they're still working on this. Like they've had to switch lines because they have to make sure, and they have to make it so that the farmers like it. It has to produce the same amount of rice because the farmers have to be able to sell it. So it's really complicated. So there's still work on it and the anti-GMO people are still trying to stop it. Okay, but the anti-GMO people have done nothing to delay its uh, introduction into the market which I have to say, Will, is it, reading your piece, the overwhelming impression is that it's been roadblocked by anti-GMO zealots. And that is not what has prevented these million kids that you cite from dying. Um, it, that's not at all clear because there's a lot of what's been going on is regulatory delays. So when they do a field trial, they have to go through a pr- various approval processes. And at, at every stage, the anti-GMO, I mean, I didn't lay out all the details, but the anti-GMO people have tried to stop every one of these. They've petitioned against it. They've protested against it. They've lobbied government officials. They tried to stop the, um, the studies in China where they were, t- where they were um, testing to see whether it would um, deliver enough vitamin A to kids. So the argument that I'm now hearing from the anti-GMO people about golden rice is the argument that, that you were just describing. It is, we have actually not succeeded in slowing it down because there's other problems. I find that unconscionable that you say, like, we try, we've been trying for 15 years to delay this thing at every possible point, but we're going to now claim that we haven't actually succeeded, and so there, that's, that's somehow supposed to absolve us. But there's, you know, a, but Will, there's a factual question as to whether they did or didn't succeed. So as to that specific factual question... Is it? Are you going to go on record and say that it is the efforts of the anti-GMO 
zealots, as you call them, that have prevented golden rice from coming to market in a timely fashion. Oh, I wouldn't. No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't uh, deny the, the you know that both both factors are involved. Um, but wait, but, but, but you say both factors are involved. What in what relation do these two factors have to one another? Have they delayed it a little bit or a lot? Because the uh, you know actual... I, I didn't get into I didn't get into quantifying that so much um, the I, I was basically telling the story of what happened and if you if you sort of tell it as a story and read it as a story and you learn about it as a story what you find is at every point the anti GMO people are trying to slow it down but that's a different um, the, question though yeah. the paragraph uh, but in I which can't, you address no, Steve, I can't, golden I can't rice quantify for you will mm-hmm. the paragraph in which you address golden rice leaves the reader with the unmistakable impression that the anti GMO movement has been successful in delaying something that could have saved a million lives. If you actually go to the uh, research institute that's in charge of golden rice, they do not present that as the reason there have been delays. They're very open about why there have oh, been delays. Oh, that's not true at all, Steve. No, no, they, they actually do. They, they make a stronger claim than I would about it. Um, they, they, I mean, believe me, if you- I didn't you find that the, anywhere on their website. Well, you where? may not have found it, but I can assure you that it's out there. Um, I came across it a lot in my research about golden rice. In fact, one of the allegations from the anti-GMO side was that the pro-GMO people exaggerate um, the, you know, like the, this whole, you know, blaming the anti-GMO side for millions of deaths. I I think that actually we were pretty careful in the Slate piece not to say that. We described as a fact that it's, you know, it's 15 years later, here's how many kids have died, um, and that the anti-GMO side is still trying to stop it. Those are just simply objective facts. Why, for example, does Germany hyper-regulate GMOs? Surely they're not simply acting as hysterics. Well, you know, that's a really difficult question. I was uh, on a radio show the other day talking with Michael Hansen of Consumers Union about this, and he, he made this point about how other countries, how the Europeans regulate it. And so, yeah, I mean, if you, if you start to re- draw the conclusion that maybe GMOs are a little bit overregulated, now you, now, I mean, you know, in other words, the countries around the world that have anti, you know, bans on GMO, as in parts of Africa, or have, you know, a GMO labeling or stricter regulation that they're irrational, now you have to basically explain it's a, it's a it's a little bit difficult to make people uh, to persuade people that um, all these European countries that we generally trust um, are somehow not being rational about this. Uh, my own view is, yeah, they're being a little bit irrational about it in the sense that they are applying standards to GMO regulation and approval that they wouldn't apply to non-GMO technologies, even when the non-GMO technology is as disruptive or more to the plant genome. But, you know, it sort of slows down GMOs in these countries. Is it the end of the world? No. But I don't think that we should say, well, just because Germany has such and such a regulation, that we should assume Germany is right and our own FDA, for example, is wrong. But did you do reportorial research into why Germany does this, or are you just guessing? Well, I've certainly read a lot about it. I mean, the the main difference between Europe and the United States is in attitudes toward technology and technology about food is a a big part of that. Um, You can, you know, argue independently about whether people are right or wrong about it, but there certainly is a difference in public opinion that has made GMO regulation much tougher in Europe than in the United States. Well, I have to register one more point of skepticism with the piece. You say, despite an ongoing debate about the effects of glyphosate, experts agree that it's relatively benign. I think that would leave the reader with the false impression. I think that there's a lot of debate about whether or not it's benign. In fact, it was recently labeled a probable carcinogen by the WHO. Do you think you left readers with a fair impression of the dangers of this uh, herbicide? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think you make a good point, Steve, about you know, th there is a debate about the effects of glyphosate. And that's part of why we use the phrase relatively benign rather than, you know, calling it benign, um, because it is an herbicide. Um, and, you know, there all of these chemicals have various environmental effects. They can have, you know, in large doses, they can have toxic effects. And so the question you're always trying to deal with it with herbicides is, which one do you use? How do you use it? How much do you use it? Um, and are there non-herbicidal methods of, say, weed control or, you know, non-pesticidal methods of, in of insect control? Um, so, you know, farmers, environmentalists, scientists, everybody should be talking about those things all the time. If you can find something better for the environment than glyphosate, that's great. But I just, I do think that it's important for people to be aware that there's trade-offs. And in fact, somebody from the other side, from the pro-GMO side, was unhappy with our article because this person's point was if you, if you replace uh, a, an herbicide like you know, atrazine with Roundup, with, with glyphosate, um, even if you use a little bit more of the glyphosate on a net balance environmentally, you're, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gain or it's, le it's less harmful than what you were doing before. So these are really, really complicated technical questions, and there will be more and more debate about them. And I think that's great. I just think as long as we're talking about the science, uh, we're moving forward. All right. Well, the piece is called Unhealthy Fixation, The War Against Genetically Modified Organisms is Full of Fear-Mongering, Errors, and Fraud. Labeling them will not make you safer. It's by Will Salatin. Will, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Steve. All right. Well, Julia, we've got some more business. What, what's up? Uh, we wanted to share a little love today uh, about one of our sister Panoply shows, Dana. Yes, the Panoply show I wanted to recommend is one that I've actually done a crossover episode with, the spoiler special about the movie Dope that came in and we all talked about it together. It's called Our National Conversation About Conversations About Race, or About Race for short. And uh, it's Baratunde Thurston, Tanner Colby, who's an old spoiler partner of mine, and Raquel Cepeda. So a black man, a white man, and a Latino woman, all talking about the sort of race issues of the week in a very you know serious yet lighthearted kind of poking fun at each other sort of way that's delightful to listen to. And since the news is boiling over with those kinds of stories these days. So every week they have something amazing to talk about. When I went back to, to talk to kids at my school for my book, the Confederate flag was already gone, but I gave a survey to like, you know, a few hundred kids. And I asked them, what does the Confederate flag mean to you? Literally, I kid you not, 77, 78% said that the Confederate flag stands for school spirit. And they mean it. They're 17-year-olds. That's what they know. In Alabama, in the Capitol, in the state Capitol, they just took it down unceremoniously. And that, to me, spoke volumes. Just take that shit down. We would never fly a British flag on government property. You don't give so much real estate to the traitors. So that show, again, is about race. You can find it on the Panoply page or on our show page, or they have their own webpage, which is showaboutrace. That's one word, showaboutrace.com. Dr. Seuss is the pen name under which Theodore Geisel wrote dozens of children's books, many reckoned as classics. They include Horton Hears a Who. It scarcely even needs to be enumerated. Green Eggs and Ham. The Grinch Stole Christmas. On and on and on. I mean, literally, interminable. It's a wonderful list. Um, on the occasion of a new posthumous Seuss book called What Pet Should I Get? We thought we would talk about Dr. Seuss, which we've never done. Uh, Dana, you're close to this subject. Uh, uh, your uh, partner in life is a children's book author. I would imagine you have highly developed uh, opinions about uh, Dr. Seuss. Uh, yeah, definitely. And I can't wait to, to read this book with him and hear what he thinks of it. I mean, a, a couple of things about this book. Like, First of all, having read the book, which, which just releases this week and, and had my hands on 
in the office. I have to say, I respect this as a posthumous publication project, just in comparison to the uh, the things that are happening around Harper Lee's Go Set a Watchman right now, or that happened when Nabokov's Laura, which was an unfinished novel that was basically on index cards, was published a few years ago. This seems like a more respectable digging back into somebody's archives and publishing something, because apparently Ted Geisel had actually laid this aside in fairly finished form with the line drawings completed as if it were a manuscript that he were ready to take to the publisher. It's not clear why he didn't take it to the publisher, um, but it seems unlikely that, it, that it's because it was something he wanted to scrap. So so on that level, I feel perfectly good about reading What Pet Should I Get? It doesn't feel like an act of Seussian violation. Yeah, not at all. Um, as to whether it's um, sort of class A Dr. Seuss, probably not. I mean, it's not something that has to be in your Dr. Seuss library. It's it's fun to read. It doesn't actually always scan perfectly, which I think is more probably an editing error than a, a Dr. Seuss error. It's very rare that you read a piece of Dr. Seuss verse that doesn't scan beautifully and isn't a complete pleasure to read out loud. And there's a couple pages in this book where there's a little bit, you know, there's one too many feet in the line or something like that. But as is observed in the little explanatory note about Dr. Seuss at the end of the book, and as many reviewers of this book have observed, it has the same two main characters as one of Dr. Seuss's greatest classics, which is One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. It's, it's got this same brother-sister pair who investigate all the strange animals in that book, but they're inve- investigating much less strange animals because they're making a trip to a pet store. Um, it sort of then becomes a, a fantasy trip to the pet store where he starts imagining other weird pets he might get. But the pets they're actually choosing between are cats, dogs, rabbits, fish. Um, so I sort of feel like it's a companion piece, but a less sophisticated version of the great One Fish, Two Fish. Yeah, and there's actually an afterword in the book, which is weirdly constructed. It's a sort of three or four pages that is written in adult prose, but adult prose that seems meant to be readable by a like five-year-old. And so it has this very treacly condescending tone that starts with an assertion and a reminder that when this book was written, people used to think it was okay to buy pets at pet stores. Now everybody understands that's a horrible travesty. It's just like, oh, like everyone knows it's a book from the past. It's fine. Like you don't have to have like a – you're not going to get sued for setting a book in a pet store. But anyway, it goes on to detail much more useful, interesting things about Dr. Seuss's history with pets. And, and it shows pictures of him with his pets, which I forgive it a lot for that. It's pretty adorable to see Dr. Seuss and his wife cuddling their various dogs. That's also true. And it also does posit and, and suggest that this book may have been some kind of companion piece to One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish, uh, which is a point that was actually made by Maria Russo in her cover story in the Times Book Review this past weekend about Dr. Seuss. Um, and in it, she argued that perhaps... The success of One Fish, Two Fish is why this book was laid aside. This book was ready for print, but then he decided to do something wilder and crazier and more metrically sophisticated and uh, avant-garde in terms of plot. Can I just make a quick quote from One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish to prove how wonderful and creative it and how far it goes down this path of strange creatures? It's one page that I know by heart because it's my favorite page of One Fish, Two Fish. So the two kids, the brother and the sister, are carrying this huge sort of bottle that looks like a genie's bottle, and it's got this furry, Seussian creature floating in it. It's a very menacing, dark, darkly colored page. And the kids are saying... Look what we found in the park in the dark. We will take him home. We will call him Clark. He will live in our house. He will grow and grow. Will our mother like this? We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Um, so this book feels a little bit more conventional and less interesting. The book that it actually reminds me of more than One Fish, Two Fish, which is glorious but actually not one of my favorites. It's a little bit too plotless even for me. Um is a much later book of Dr. Seuss's called Hunches and Bunches. Uh, the Russo piece notes that this is a book about kind of the paradox of choice and the and sort of the consumer surfeit of 
uh, 20th century America. That what pet should I get is. You yeah, mean. yeah, yeah. That it's sort of about the malaise of the person confronted with too many options and you can only get one pet and, and you're overwhelmed by what our consumer society is throwing at you and, and what can you ever do with it. Um, the but But what I love about it is that it does capture that mood of panicked indecision from a kid who knows they're going to get a treat unless they can't figure out what treat to get and the treat's going to go away. There is that um, real kid anxiety captured in it. And that does seem to me like its strongest suit. And I really love, I think it's an underloved Seuss book, Hunches and Bunches, which is about um, kind of a kid day when you have no plans and you can't figure out what you want to do. And all of these different hunches come by and like a munch hunch and a homework hunch and a, a real mean hunch that says your bike will never get fixed. And uh, it's sort of a book about the psychic state of like restlessly ancillary trying to figure out what to do with your day, but being unable to rest yourself from the ottoman where you're slouched contemplating your fate. And it's really fun. Like, it's a very fun portrayal of that agonizing moment of human indecision. So I feel like if you want goofy creatures, read One Fish, Two Fish. And if you want agonizing childish indecision, you should read Hunches and Bunches and that basically nobody needs to buy or read What Pet Should I Get? <laughs> well, except as a Seuss curiosity. I mean, certainly if you're interested in his career and his biography, you know, you want a complete Seuss library. I, I, I think it's not a shame to have it in there. I'm curious to hear you guys talk more generally about what Seuss meant to you when you were reading with your children when they were small. Steve, were your girls Seuss, Seuss fiends? Yes. I mean, they were children, therefore they were, right? I mean, it's almost ironclad. Um, it's interesting to think about what kids respond to in this. It's... Um, the, I think Dana's absolutely right. It's something to do with the metrics of it, the the fact that it, it scans really perfectly, that it's it's perfectly poetically rhythmic and careful, and therefore powerfully mnemonic. It's it's you memorize a Seuss book as a kid very very quickly, or as an adult re- reading and rereading them to your kids. Um, uh, and I guess what I'm getting at is that the effect of Seuss books are so holistically perfect, and they're implanted in us so early that how often have we stopped to analyze why this is great literature? And it's hard in a way. I mean, no one really draws like, if I'm not mistaken, no one really draws like Seuss. And nobody creates this odd parallel universe of whimsy the way Seuss does. Um, I'm reminded of an amazing story, and I hope I get it right. But in the post-war years, when Seuss was becoming extremely uh, popular, coincided with this... um, uh, attempt to hold a lot of colloquia all over the world in in the cultural capitals of the Western world about um, culture and and freedom and anti-totalitarianism. And it was very important to sort of announce what the civilized virtues of the West were as opposed to the communist East. And all of the really huge names of arts and letters and thought and art were invited to them. And Nabokov tells this amazing story of going to one that had like I mean, I'm going to get the names probably wrong, but I think, you know, Andre Malraux and Sartre and, and you know, fill in the blank, like titans of, of the post-war intellectual world. And his conclusion was very simple. He said, absolutely everyone there was a complete fatuous idiot, with one exception, Theodore Geisel, Dr. Seuss, who he regarded as a, like a towering genius. I love that assessment. Nabokov and, and Seuss as the two, you know, eternal unvanquishable geniuses of 20th century letters, I think I would go along with that. Oh, my God. Just having them in the same room together is amazing. Yeah, that's like an imagined... That should be a one-act play. Somebody should write that one-act play. Nabokov and Seuss at a party full of fatuous idiots. Yeah, I love that. Did you have the experience I recently had of 
having encountered Seuss as a child and then re-encountering it as you read it to your kids? Oh, yeah, I definitely was read lots and lots of Seuss as a child. We, in fact, we still have the sleep book that was my old sleep book, and I read it to my daughter all the time. The sleep book has to be one of its all-time classics, right? It's so good. I hadn't. I don't think I had that as a kid, and I've discovered it. It's so long that your kids actually are sleepy by the end of it. Well, his books, children's books, were much longer then. It's it's mentioned somewhere, in, in maybe in this, this text in the back about Seuss, that most of his books tended to be 64 pages long. Now the classic length is half of that. A picture book is usually 32 pages long. So you usually have to divide up a Seuss reading into a couple of nights if you want bedtime to ever happen. Ha, you've never read my children to bed. <laughs> They're like 100-page tyrants. Any fewer than five books a night. Is Are you going to read them what pet should I get? I'm, I, I'm not sure I'm as comfortable with it as a posthumous publication as you are, Dana. It doesn't feel like a violation in the way that some of these other ones do, but it just feels so unnecessary. Like, he was clearly a man in control of his pitches, and he... He was nowhere near losing the ability to shepherd to the finish line published work in 1960. He continued to publish work, you know, nearly up until his death. In oh, 19, and that was in, the height of his flowering sort in of 1990. The so he had 30 years to think about whether this book should come out, and he didn't publish it. And to think that that he's as kind of like raffish and scattered as his cat in the hat figure, and maybe he just oops, accidentally it went in a box. What kind of box? A box with a lock. I found the book, <laughs> and here's the book. Yeah, like it is with a fox, uh, right? Like it just there is a sort of absent-minded professor quality, like zany, maniacal, not quite concerned with the practical things-ness to his, the world he's, the worlds he creates that makes it seem like perhaps you could imagine that he'd be like, oh my, what pet should I get? Oh, I forgot to publish that one. I just like, that is fucking bullshit. It's so clear from uh, all the writing, contemporaneous writing about him and from the precision and exactitude of the work that he did release that like, he didn't want to publish this. But his widow knew all that about him, and she is still alive and okayed the publication. Well, yeah. <laughs> She's not him. I don't I'm know. just saying I've seen more unethical posthumous publications than this. Yeah, I guess I, I don't I don't think this is a, like, besmirchment, but I don't think my kids need to read it. There's plenty of Seuss's we haven't gotten to yet um, that, that we'll get to before we get to this one, I think. Um, I agree with all that, but it, it, uh, Julia, it, and what you were saying, it occurs to me for the first time, maybe, what's so unique about the work, which is that it's, it because it's in poetic meter, it's tightly constricted and very controlled, um, and yet it celebrates mayhem, right? In so many of these books, it really is about, you, you know, things rolling out of control verbally and actually and what's great is that they, that they get at the child's longing for disorder, right? Because adult order doesn't make sense to a kid, and they're 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 basically a ball of id that wants to express itself beyond constraint. At the same time, order is hugely necessary and comforting to a child. In fact, they don't really want what they think they want. In fact, what they want is constraint and. Um, and and a degree of order, orderliness and predictability, and he put these two things in in balance with one another in a completely you know brilliant way. I think you're totally right, Steve. That it's that it's the that that juxtaposition between order and mayhem. And I think I guess the third quality is imagination, right? Like it's it's a, a set of books that you're reading to the kids at the moment that they're beginning to figure out imaginative play. I think one of my favorite books, another favorite book that I've discovered. 
uh, since having kids is Oh, The Things You Can Think, which I may have endorsed, but it's literally a book about, it feels like it's a book about what it must have been like to be Ted Geisel because it's all about, oh, the things you can think up. And it's just page after page of the things you can think. And my favorite one, this is my line committed uh, to memory, is you can think of Kitty O'Sullivan Krause in her big balloon swimming pool over her house. And it's like a, <laughs> tethered to a home. There's like an inflatable yard pool, but filled with helium. And then she's like taking a little dive in it. But and what's the, her name again? Kitty O'Sullivan Krause. <laughs> You can think of Kitty O'Sullivan Krause in her big balloon swimming pool over her house. You know, it's metrically perfect. It's incredibly goofy. The picture is perfect. Uh, that also evokes my favorite name from Too Many Daves, that little short story in the Sneetches, Marvin O'Gravel Balloon Face. <laughs> There's just so many perfect turns of phrase. The other thing that surprised me re-encountering these books as an adult is how much I don't like some of the classics. Like, uh, Green Eggs and Ham is way down on the list from what I would have expected. I liked that book as a kid. But as a parent, it seems to be uh, a treatise to being a real pest. Basically, a treat is to, like, stubbornness and then being super annoying. <laughs> but it's fun to read because it's fun to play the annoying guy. Well, Green Eggs and Ham, like like a Hop on Pop, was written as an early reader. So it, it does have a very limited vocabulary and was specifically engineered by Seuss to be something that little kids could read when they were just starting to read. And I'll always love Green Eggs and Ham because it's one of the first books my daughter ever read. And I have a very precious video. I feel like if I lost everything else in all my photo archives, I would want to keep this. It's just like a couple minutes of her reading it out loud to herself and surprising me with the fact that she could read. Oh, wow. That's amazing. What are your favorites, Steve? Uh, yeah, I agree, Julia, that that it's it's unexpected that the ones I loved as a kid, which would which were probably Green Eggs and Ham and Cat in the Hat, don't really connect with them. I don't love them as much as like Fox and Socks and these other discoveries that I don't really remember from my childhood. But Fox and Socks um, is awesome. Is one of my favorites. Talk about mnemonic. Fox and Socks you memorize without even trying. Yeah. Uh, chewy. Gooey, now I we know the same page. Gooey goo for chewy chewing. That's, That's what, what that, that goo goose, goose is doing. doing. Do you choose to choose sir, to sir? If sir, you sir choose to choose sir with the goo goose, choose sir, do sir. <laughs> yeah, that is a great one. The I think another aspect of the metrical complexity of these books is that they keep parents interested and entertained, right? And when, you, when you're in the your 20th hour of awakeness and you're reading Fox and Socks, uh, there is like a mental puzzle there for you that is different from just reading Pat the Bunny. And the kid picks up on that pleasure, right? I mean, the adult is having fun reading and enjoying the meter, and that comes through to the kid. So it's it's a it's a feedback loop. The propulsiveness of it too. There's like a forward motion that the meter gives you that that um, makes them feel like wild rides. They're anapests, right? All of those things. Gooey goo for I don't know. Steve, you're the poet and poetry reader. <laughs> <laughs> it is anapestic tetrameter. That's um, his usual meter, with right? Occasional, yeah. Yeah, with occasional amphibractic tetrameter. And there you go. Did you make up that last category? <laughs> You'll never know. <laughs> no one can say. Um, it does. An amphibractic yeah. sounds kind of like a, um, an amphibract sounds like a, like one of the things in uh, Walk It In My Pocket. <laughs> All right. Well, then for what it's worth, the new book is called What Pet Should I Get? But there are dozens of other others one could choose to read before it by Dr. Seuss. Uh, certainly listeners will have their own uh, Dr. Seuss associations and memories and opinions. So come voice them at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? 
you know, I'm going to keep talking about Dr. Seuss because I'm not done yet. <laughs> I was going to endorse something else, but I'll endorse a couple of the books that I wanted to mention in this segment because I realized when Julia recommended Hunches and Bunches, which I've never read or really even heard of, that Dr. Seuss is so prolific that even though everyone loves him and everyone grows up with him and reads him to their kids, probably everybody has dozens of Dr. Seuss titles that they don't know and have never read. So I'm going to recommend a couple that I feel like are not on the standard Seuss shelf that should be. One is Happy Birthday to You. Do you guys know that great one? Great one. Totally great. I didn't know it as a kid. Somebody gave it to us when I had a kid. And it's such a good birthday present. It's one of my go-to birthday presents now for a little kid or a baby because um, because it's just a great Seussian image of a birthday bird who swoops in and takes this kid to the, uh, the land of Katru where all kinds of insane, excessive celebrations happen for the entire day of his birthday. And then, Steve, to get to your your image of, you know, chaos that in the end is controlled, the bird nicely plonks him back in his bed and, you know, he ends the, the, the birthday in his own bed. Um, so Happy Birthday to You is great. And another that I almost never see on people's shelves or even in bookstores, but I'm sure it's easily found online, is Scrambled Egg Super. Do you guys know Scrambled no. Egg Super? It's like an extended recipe. It's a kid... Peter T. Hooper, who wants to make the ultimate scrambled egg, scrambled egg super, and he tells of his quest for the perfect egg. And so he goes throughout the world finding all these strange birds that lay eggs in bizarre ways. For example, you know, birds that are, their legs are as tall as a four-story building, so their eggs always break when they hit the ground. And <laughs> you have to r- run underneath something soft to catch the egg. Anyway, it's just it's every possible egg fantasy you can imagine, and it all ends up in a wonderful omelet. So <laughs> happy birthday to you and scrambled egg super. Those are my endorsements. I love it. Ordered. One click, Amazon. Powell's books. <laughs> <laughs> Julia, what do you have? I want to endorse a book that I finally got around to reading from an author who I finally got around to reading. Uh, I read over the past month The Goldfinch by Donna Tart. Have you guys read it? Nope, never. Have you read the other Donna Tarts? Nope. She's the secret history? Yeah, she wrote The Secret History and The Little Friend. Basically, she comes out with like a massive multi-hundred-page tome every decade, which is like a its own nice meter for a, a, good a writer rhythm. to work at. Um, and this one earned raves and won the Pulitzer a couple years ago, and I just picked it up this summer, and it is like a yarn. I didn't – I don't know, something about its bigness and being about art. I, it just seemed like big and impenetrable and maybe not great or – I don't know what about Pulitzer winning a uh, novel by my rarely producing genius made me think it was not great. But I just, I don't know. It's, the word on the street around it hadn't been like stellar for me. Anyway, I finally picked it up and I have not been so engrossed or had such a pleasurable reading experience in forever. And to those of you who are about to go hit the beach for some chunk of time somewhere in August, you lucky fools, take this book with you and read it. You will be so delighted. You will ignore your family. You will dig your feet into the sand. Ignoring uh, my family. That's what vacation's <laughs> all about. You will just die to know what happens next. It, it is a book that manages to combine um, a pretty solid mystery plot, like there's an object uh, that is removed from its rightful place at the beginning, uh, and then we trace its path over the course of the book. It has extraordinary psychological insight uh, into a couple really great characters at the center of the book. So it feels very emotionally true and nuanced and interesting. Uh, it has glorious sociological set pieces about kind of artsy New York, upper crust New York, uh, the American Southwest, the art world, the fine antiques world, uh, Amsterdam. There's there's all kinds of interesting observations and portraits. And it's very thoughtful about the power of beautiful objects and be- beauty more generally. And um, it's not a perfect book. I'm not quite sure. I think it sticks the landing. 
but it does not, I promise that it does not not stick the landing in a way that after 800 pages, you shake your fist at the sky. I was still incredibly grateful and thrilled to have had such an enjoyable reading experience. So The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. All right. Well, um, this week I have a uh, very straightforward endorsement. Um, It's just grilling pizza, making pizza on the grill. I've never done it before. It turns out um, it's as good as they say. Um, It just makes this really smoky, melty, like kind of gooey on top, crisp on bottom concoction is absolutely in the summer months the way to do pizza. Just get get a bunch of veggies, roast them up first and then there are a few very simple techniques you have to use in order to keep this from being basically a grilling shitstorm. but if you do those um you end up with uh, something uniquely delicious so grill your homemade pizza don't don't do it in the oven all right thank you dana thanks dude thanks julia thanks steve You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Joel Meyer. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht and Marissa Vichy. And Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on itunes.com slash panoply. And our Twitter feed, as always, is at Slate Cult Fest for Julia Turner and Dana Stevens. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Then down from below, immigrate to the stack, came a bird from a plane, little turtle named Matt. This part of the throne, this burden little turtle looked up and said, I beg your pardon, King Yiddle, I'll things in my back, my shoulders and my knees. How long must we stand in your majesty? Silence the tent of the turtle's box back to the bad purple little, a turtle named Matt. I'm a gentle detective to old marvelous me, for I am you.